So what are some good movies that feature dungeon crawls? Dungeon crawl movies? Like the movie Dungeon Crawl? Or Is that a, is that a movie? Yeah. It's like from the 80s, right? <laughs> Wait, that's not a real movie, is it? Yes, it is. Yes. I'm saying regular movies that are dungeon crawls. Like Die Hard. Oh. I guess Die Hard is... Okay. He's trapped in a building, and he has a set of goals, and there's bosses and enemies to kill. It's also Christmas-themed, so it's like a Christmas-themed dungeon crawl. Oh. Oh. Okay. Uh, the Goonies. The Goonies <laughs> oh, The Goonies is like a, a literal dungeon. Like, when they're going through, <laughs> like, there are traps. There are, like, oh, it's the best. All right. So I have, I have two. So the first one is Indiana Jones, of course. Oh, yeah. Uh, but the second... Uh, might not be as. It's gonna be similar to Die Hard. It's Home Alone, except <laughs> except that the criminals are like the the players who are going through the dungeon. Oh, and it's and if you think of it like the two horrors, it's just oh like God. crazy traps all over the place. That little kid, it's Kevin, right? That's his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kevin's Kev, the final Kevin boss. Kevin McAllister, right? Kevin McAllister is the final <laughs> boss. Of the dungeon in Home Alone. <laughs> Welcome to Vox Arcana. My name is William. I'm Jake. I'm David. And this is a Dungeons and Dragons podcast, episode one, Dungeons. Our first question is, how often do you use Dungeons? I love Dungeons. I think uh, it's half the title of the game itself, so I think it's got to be a a part of it. Um, And so I'd say for me, about 20% of my sessions take place in Dungeons. is Is that higher or low compared to you guys? When you I say like twenty percent. Is that like you have a session and there's a guaranteed part, or of if you combine all your sessions total, it's twenty percent? Uh, both are correct. I would reckon. <laughs> no. Um, no, I like. I think. Um, yeah, about one in five sessions is the players are in a dungeon, and I, I don't like to do multi-session dungeons. Um, but I mean, I, I've done them before and they've worked fine. Uh, but normally I, I devote kind of one session to the dungeon itself. And yeah, it's, I'd say it's about 20%. I actually feel like I'm in a dungeon like a third of the time whenever I'm really running a game. Yeah, it's never... I, I loosely define dungeons, so I'll have like a mapped out area and I'll, that will be a dungeon. So it could be like someone's house and they're like robbing oh. it. And I don't think... Be, like, I wouldn't dungeon. say a house counts as a dungeon, David. Well, see, well, let's talk about that. What what does what's the definition of a dungeon? I well, I guess it's any contained environment that the players have limited movement. And, well, uh, does it is not a house? That, is that not a house? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it's so small. Like it's it's like a mini dungeon. Let's say a mini dungeon. I mean, yeah. but it's still like a dungeon nonetheless. No, I and, think okay. So so we should basically define dungeons then. So like for me. Uh, a dungeon, I don't know if this is from the DMG, but basically I define a dungeon as like an enclosed or like like semi-enclosed space. Um, and so that separates it from other um, 
other encounters because they are confined um, and the environment kind of leads the way. So if they're, they're having a, say the players are having an encounter in like a forest or like an open plain, uh, they can go north, south, east, west. I mean, they could go technically up and down too. Um, but in a dungeon, you are confined by the structure or not even structure. You know, if you're in a dungeon in the clouds, like you're defined by like falling off the cloud. <laughs> Um, so I think it's the enclosed nature of it, um, which kind of forces players to be funneled in to encounters and gives the dungeon master a little bit more control. You know, like if, if there are players, um, if you have players who like to go off the rails or, you know, like to just kind of go their own way and be mavericks, you know, they could just be like, I head south as fast as I can. They can't really do that in a dungeon. So it gives the, the dungeon master a little bit more control. So in a way, dungeons are experiences. They're a specific kind of world that players enter into to get a different experience. I'm thinking of World of Warcraft dungeons, where you have a very specific oh, set of challenges. Yeah. Called instances. Yeah. yeah, I like that. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of the Molten Core. So, you know, shout oh. out to uh, to World of Warcraft. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I like the word instance because it's like it, it it is a specific instance in time and place um, where you can add all sorts of things to change the encounters. So what are some dungeons that you've run and what made them work or not work i'm trying to think one of the dungeons that i tried to run recently was a abandoned temple that essentially had a giant cavern like splitting it in half so you could see the layers of the dungeon and it was like it was split halfway through the middle Uh, one of the so the players could very linearly explore the dungeon instead of having to go through each uh, tunnel, they could go through whatever path they wanted to, which allowed for more just player control over what they wanted to do, but that also lost me a lot of guidance in terms of like what I wanted the players to do, which mm-hmm. is you know what dungeons are really good at is controlling what the players do. When you take that element away, it's... You create they, an the open world can, dungeon. Yeah, you yeah. create an open world dungeon where you, the players do things that you don't expect them to do, so it yeah. doesn't go as planned, which is, that's one of the things that I ran into, is they did a lot of things which were, I'm just like, oh, that yeah, I guess you could do that, but then I just totally <laughs> was just, like, had to scramble and figure out solutions to it. So do you guys prefer uh, linear dungeons or open world dungeons? I think that, like, linear dungeons can create more interesting stories if you are given the opportunity to craft them but open world dungeons allow for more player choice so it's not feeling like the players are trapped into a specific storyline i I guess it kind of falls under the same balance that the whole game of DD does or all of role-playing is like that that delicate balance between player freedom and dungeon master control Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't realize like until we just started recording that dungeons are about giving the DM like some level of control. Um, and I think that's why, um, especially like the game is called Dungeons and Dragons is because when it started off with Gygax and evolving from war gaming, uh, the DM had a lot more control. Um, and I guess that, that that's really interesting to me that, that the dungeons are kind of built into the game, like baked in because the DM had such control back in first edition days. It's interesting. I think that my game personally has moved away from dungeons because I feel like there's better ways to get that kind of experience from video games, namely Diablo oh, yep. 3, or uh-huh. um, I'm a big fan of the Binding of Isaac, 
which has randomly okay. generated dungeons and loot and everything. And video games just do it better and faster. And I played D and D for this different kind of experience. That's like this social problem solving, storytelling, uh, infinite game. So I, I don't know. I kind of stay away from dungeons, I suppose, because of that reason. That's that's a really good point. I think dungeon, the whole classic dungeon crawl, you know, in the basement of a castle, it's become cliche to the point that if you're doing it straight up, especially to people who are either nerds or geeks or veteran role players, it's almost boring. Because like you said, you can get a better experience from a video game because it does all the math faster. Uh, it's better at being linear and light on story. So I think that's a good point. Yeah, but at the same time... Oh, here comes David. You also lack a lot of the story elements. A lot of dungeons aren't super... well. You look at Diablo and it's very procedurally generated. They have mm -hmm. set tiles. And while that's great and fun if you like grinding mobs endlessly, there isn't a whole lot of story to be told there. And there mm -hmm. isn't a lot of emotional engagement with the actual world itself, which is what dungeons can do really well, being in a confined space, being almost trapped at times. Have you ever played D&D with players who are coming from video games, specifically MMOs? <sighs> yes. Oh. I... I yeah, it, it is, I would argue that most D&D players, uh, especially nowadays, are coming from, you know, the millennial, they're, they've been playing video games their whole life, um, and they start to role play, and I think that's, a lot of people come in with misconceptions, um, or they're not even necessarily misconceptions, but for me as a DM, I prefer the more um, improvisational, theatrical nature of it. Uh, and they come in with that mindset of min-maxing and trying to get loot and gear and kill. And they a lot of murder hobos come from those type of players. <laughs> I know that's exactly how I started to play. when I Yes, it was. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> how I played. Because I, I came from, you know, playing a bunch of MMOs. Yeah. And it's it's, like, I gotta, like, how can I maximize damage output? And how can I get the best gear and have the coolest character? You know, and it, that's, that's <laughs> still fun. Uh, you know, and and, is, I, and, yeah. and I don't want to frame it in a way that it's like, oh, once you get to my my level of play, it's much better. You know, like we're not in the or I'm not in some special uh, tower of enlightenment. Um, it's just a different way to play. Um, no, I, I don't want to seem elitist and say MMOs are bad. Um, what I'm saying is that uh, there's this mindset that comes from video games, especially MMOs, um, that's sort of a systemic or a statistical you must overcome and beat the system to be the best. So I need the best loot yeah. and the best numbers. And That's really all true. you care about is going to that next level to beat the next thing. And it's that uh, gameplay loop that's kind of frustrating to me because as I've played more D&D &D and I play fewer video games, I realize that most video games boil down to the same, um, let's say, two minutes of gameplay that just loop over and over again. Yeah. With D&D, &D, uh, it doesn't have to because you can do yeah. anything. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the problem comes through players playing D&D as they would a video game. And at that point, like, you're only getting a worse version of a video game. Because yeah. you're, you're, you, not, you're you having, can't do you're the math the fast visual enough. Elements, you can't do the math as fast. It's not necessarily as fun. But D&D has so much more it can offer in different aspects. It has very rich stories. It has interesting characters, like, hilarious hijinks and different situations that you can get yourself into that video games can't offer. How do you go about designing your dungeons? What are, what are some key things you want to include really bad? Uh, do you have a structure you start off with? 
So I know for me, uh, the first thing that I do when I'm, I know that I want to include a dungeon at some point in my game is that I ask myself, why are the players going there in the first place? Mm-hmm. And then how does that inform the dungeon's design and purpose? Mm-hmm. So let's say you want to get a magical artifact. Who is the artifact made by? That would be the first question I ask. And the second is, why is it in the dungeon? And who's guarding it? And then you you start asking all these questions and they start informing how the dungeon forms, and from there you just build this logic tree that trickles down into all these different things until you have a dungeon completely built. Huh. I think I almost do the same two things, but in the opposite order. Um, I think I think of the dungeon concept first, um, based on kind of the terrain they're in, or the city they're in, or um, even the, the plane of existence they're on. And I think of the concept of the dungeon first. Is the dungeon underwater? Is the dungeon uh, in a castle? Is the dungeon... Uh, all all those, those questions that are, you know, all in the DMG. Um, so I ask those questions and form the dungeon first. Then I think of plot hooks of how to get them into the dungeon. So I basically do the same two steps that you do, but just in a different order. I have run very few dungeons, and when I do, they kind of fall flat. My most recent one is I'm running Hot Springs Island by Jacob Hurst, which is a great uh, sandbox kind of game. And so it comes with a bunch of stuff pre-made. So that's my first answer is that most of the time I just grab a pre-made dungeon and then sort of tweak it because uh, I don't really have time to prep anything that specific. Most of my GM yeah, take, prep is... It takes uh, a while. Yeah, it does. And um, so in this one dungeon, uh, the players were hunting for this giant boar. It's like the size of a, a diesel truck. And they didn't know if it was in the cave. So they find the cave, they go in, and they have to poke around. And it's kind of nerve-wracking because they didn't know if it was there. And long story short, it was not there until they got to the back, and then it was, and they had to fight it. It was great. But it was what David would call, or it was what I would call a mini-dungeon because it was just a couple of rooms. It wasn't very large. What I really like is figuring out why the players would go into a dungeon and giving them all kinds of really good reasons to go into what is essentially a meat grinder, death trap, very dangerous mm-hmm. um, there's this fantastic YouTube channel. I recommend everyone watch it by a guy named Mark Brown. He talks about game design. And players tend to plan away their own fun. Ideally, to have the most fun, you want your players to be in danger and making compromising decisions all the time. And players will always choose the safest path. And so my personal joy of dungeon design comes from figuring out how to tempt players into making a suboptimal choice. Hmm. And that's, I just love that. I think that's a great point because, I mean, when you think about, like, if you heard of a dungeon uh, in real life and you stumbled upon it, like, it would take a hell of a lot in order to convince you or coerce you to go into it, you know, because it's like you, you like, there are traps, there are, you know, it, it's not like explore, like, it's not like a teenager exploring an old thing, like, it is a legitimate horrifying you might die. There are skeletons all over. You know, a lot of times, like like these dungeons are incredibly dangerous. So I think the story hook um, to get them in there has to be a treble hook. It's got it's got to be one that can really really get them in there. Um, so I mean, going into that, what are some good story hooks that you have uh, for dungeons uh, that you have used uh, to convince or coerce your players to enter these death traps? For me, I just ran an adventure called The Claws of Madness, and in that game, the story hook really is that there's something wrong with this island. There's a there's some kind of evil underneath the island that's ruining everyone's day, causing corruption. Classic. So you have to go down and solve the problem. And if you don't, well, people will die, people will get hurt, and 
bad things continue. So you really have no choice unless you're a coward, in which case, why are you playing D&D? <laughs> or why, is your, why, why did you make your character a coward? <laughs> yeah. Uh, for me, I think story hooks to get them in there. I mean, there's the classic, like, magic item they need to get. Um, a lot of times it will work, especially if you make the dungeon not seem that scary. Um, just the, the, the appeal of wealth, uh, the appeal of gold or magic items uh, or ancient relics will get some of your uh, more courageous characters. You know, sometimes that's all it takes. Um, a lot of times it will be some some MacGuffin that they're supposed to retrieve for the main quest line. Um, a, a lot of times even someone will say, my, my son or daughter was kidnapped and taken into the dungeon. and They're offering a big reward for you to go retrieve them. And so that that can be a, a good one as well. I think the the story hooks work the same way they do for any other way that you guide your players along. Um, but I think for dungeons, like I said before, they have to be really good, um, or else the people will just be like, "Well, I, I'm not going in that death trap. Why would I?" <laughs> it's got to be enticing. Yeah, you have to have a reward worth delving and risking your life for. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the other ways that you can get people into dungeons is you can kind of force them into it. Uh, if you, that, that's, that's a good not, point. it's not as popular and it's definitely not as fun, but you know, you could have your characters have to pass some sort of trial to prove their like worth. Yeah. Or even like you get dropped into a hole and you have to find your way out. Yeah. Or yeah. even the classic, even start of a lot of, of D and D games. It's probably the second most popular start behind you all meet in a tavern uh, is you're all locked up in a prison together, and you have mm, to do a prison Prisoners on a wagon going uh, to Winterfell. The, uh, the classic that Elder Scrolls familiar. intro. Well, I think um, I think that's very common in D and D, and a lot of the times, yeah, you the, the prison is a dungeon you have to escape, um, and I think that's very common. Uh, but I like what you said, David, earlier about uh, a trial. Uh, I think some of the yes. funnest dungeons that I have done, the most enjoying dungeons I've done, have been either a god trying to test the hero's worth um, or like a wizard uh, just doing absurd things to just mess with the players. Uh, not all dungeons need to be this dark, brooding, frightening meat grinder death trap. A lot of them can be kind of whimsical trials um, that your characters are put into. And then you can bring in absurd things um, that, that kind of give it a flavor that's not so dark and grim and gritty and uh dungeon crawly if i may that's called a funhouse dungeon and yeah uh, yeah <laughs> in fact i have run a few of them usually if i'm coming up with something on the fly um in fact today i came up with a voice for a character that will later appear in a funhouse dungeon that is <laughs> loosely based on a cruel impression of david bowie and uh <laughs> oh, it, it no. really has a specific tone uh that i think would only fit in something more whimsical and silly yeah I really, those are some of my favorite, you know, not all dungeons have to be this dark, gritty thing. I think that the whimsical adds a lot to it. I think, it, yeah, it also goes against the trope of the dungeon being, yes. you know, this dark, yes. scary, mysterious place. Yeah, yeah. Having, having a whimsical dungeon goes against the trope because it, it really brings like a joyful tone to this normally dark and mysterious place. Yeah, and I think the, the trope defiance um, which is a huge part of my just greater D&D philosophy. And just to get away from dungeons for a little bit, like trope defiance with players nowadays, they've grown up with Lord of the Rings. They know fantasy stuff. They know these cliches they see over and over and over. 
So a lot of D&D um, is messing with those preconceptions um, and surprising players with things that they don't expect. If you do just a straight through dungeon, it's fun. Um, but if you really want to make your campaign or your in this specific situation, your dungeon over the edge, just, just over the top great, I think you have to defy some of these tropes. Give me some examples of the tropes you have defied, Jake. Oh, I mean, that's that's too vague a question. Like, there's a billion. I mean, even little things like having a gnome fighter or having a uh, dwarf wizard. That's a very small example. But normally when you think of wizard, you think human or elf uh, with a white beard. Uh, when you think of a fighter, you think of a big human or uh, a dragon, or dragonborn <laughs> orc. Yeah, half orc. So even little things like that um, really, I think, add so much flavor to the campaign. Um, because it's not just your standard uh, fantasy tropes that we see over and over and over again. It messes with them. And I think some of the best campaigns have been defiance of these, especially Tolkien-esque, like, high fantasy tropes. Um, I think defying those... Um, even Game of Thrones is an example of that. Like, it is defying so many high fantasy tropes that we living in the Western English-speaking world have just been inundated with since birth. Um, I think a lot of D&D can, can be useful in defying those tropes, and that, that's what gives it that, that extra pop uh, that really takes it over the edge and makes it great. I'm going to jump in here before the fans write in and tell you that uh, Game of Thrones is not high fantasy. It is low fantasy. But oh, yes, no, no, I, I, agree. I But low fantasy, as a, uh, low fantasy as a genre is basically a defiance of high fantasy. Oh, I uh, agree. Yeah. Like Even uh, in the game The Witcher, uh, specifically The Witcher 3, Mm-hmm. Uh, I would call it sort of dark fairy tales, uh, and yeah. it takes fantasy in a direction that you just don't see. Um, but actually, this relates very well to my favorite monster, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> so I guess we go to monsters uh, in general for our dungeons. Um, what are monsters you love to plug into your dungeons, and how do you decide which monsters are going to be the ones your heroes face when they enter? I think if you've figured out the lore of the dungeon and its place in the world, then you've probably already figured out the monsters. Um, for instance, in the beginner box for the D&D set, you chase goblins into a cave and you go after them because it's their hideout. And it, it kind of flows naturally from the logic. And as you know from the blog, I'm a big fan of following logic to its natural conclusion. <laughs> when I build a dungeon, I try to consider like what I want to be the like pinnacle beast or monster okay so like the okay yeah we we can talk about final bosses too so yeah so i would consider first like the final boss is is it like a skeleton king like whatever and then from there you build a almost ecology of the dungeon okay so you have the different living beings that would inhabit it so you'd have like the subservience like the small skeletons maybe that you go through and fight and then other living things that might take place in there because a dungeon is like a living thing yes and and echoing off that um i think dungeon like thinking of the ecology of the dungeon but even the history of the dungeon like Mm -hmm. did are these the main builders of the dungeon did they create it where a lot of times the dungeon is inhabited by beasts um long after its creation um also in regards to monsters and the ecology of of a dungeon i love the idea of competing factions in a dungeon um, I, the last one I did, uh, the last dungeon I did for my, my table was from the Tales of the Yawning Portal. And it was the, one of the initial ones, the, uh, Sunless Citadel. Um, and that one has competing factions of goblins and kobolds. 
Um, <laughs> and you kind of have a, you know, a decent reason to side with either of them. Um, and I love that concept of like, cause like these strongholds, you know, these fortresses or these dungeons that, that these monsters hide in are valuable. And so naturally like there would be groups of people that would want to have control of this strong, this, of the stronghold. Um, so I love the idea of, of different factions, even if it's like human or like, like civilized people defending against other monsters in, um, in the dungeon. And I love that because it gives just another layer of roleplay elements where you can, you know, side with the monsters or you can side with the people defending, even though they're bad guys. It just adds more moral quandaries, which you guys know I love. It creates more dynamicness, mm-hmm. I guess. Is that a word? game? That's got to be a word. I, I, it is now. I've, I've created it. Dynamicness. <laughs> hashtag that. All right. <laughs> but it creates, it creates, so you have like multiple factions and the interplay between them is what really makes the dungeon unique. And mm-hmm. players can interact with them, you know, a million different ways. And mm-hmm. each one is very special and fun and different. And mm-hmm. it provides, you know, all those opportunities. So all that being said, I think it does help having an ecology of the dungeon. But I also really like throwing things at players that they don't expect. Uh, mm-hmm. For instance, uh, I was looking through Volo's guide tonight and I saw the flail snail. It is what exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> It is exactly oh. what it sounds like, and <laughs> it's very silly and strange, um, but it goes along really well with one of my personal rules as a dungeon master, and that is to never say the name of the monster. You just describe oh, yes. how it looks that's a, that's it smells. That's a very good point. Uh, it's such a simple thing, but like if, they, if the player's around a corner and you say you see five goblins playing cards, they know exactly what to expect, and it's not... It kind of takes you out of the moment, right? Like this is, is a video game essentially at this point. Yes, and especially because if you have veteran D and D players, they will even if they uh, don't have the stats in front of them, they will start guessing challenge ratings and guessing hit points, and it becomes more of a math game. It becomes more of like we said, a video game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the role play nature of just like describing them, and then they have to guess or get closer, do another perception check to figure out what's actually going on. I love that. So I ran this game actually for you, Jake, um, this year, uh, where it was a one shot and none of the monsters were, <laughs> they were unique to the scenario. Oh, the, with the Dungeon World game? Uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics. Oh yeah, Dungeon Crawl Classics, yeah. And they were all really strange and kind of frightening and... Oh, like vine zombies and... And there, yeah, there's one moment I remember specifically where you were climbing up a tower or something and... Uh, you put on a disguise as the monsters who were doing a ritual, and you you tap one on the shoulder to, to try to blend in. And he turns around, and I said, his instead of eyes, he has just like speckles, like hundreds of eyes where his face should be. Instead of a mouth, he has a flapping wet void. And you just you said, I crap my pants and run away. And and I don't think that that was in character. I think that was out of game because it was just the whole game had this tone that was really disturbing, weird stuff like that. Um, and if I just said, oh, you run into a beast man, difficulty three, three hit dice. Yeah, it takes, yeah, AC it, it, absolutely. I think the there's descriptions no, no of flavor. the monsters. Yeah. There's, it's all about no that texture. flavor. So one thing that I enjoy when encountering, I guess, and human NPCs in a dungeon is hearing them like have dialogue. So in games, oh, you'll have, yes. you'll have, uh, they'll, they'll be like in general, you know, like. The weather's cold tonight, or whatever. But that that (laughs) really humanizes them, and it provides. Did you all hear that? Oh no, it must have been the wind. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but it provides really interesting human aspects to the game, and it also provides the players with a way of negotiating. Let's say you hear yes. over here the guards talking about being low on money. Maybe you could bribe your way through instead of absolutely. And and that brings up a good point um, for just the citizens of the dungeon. Um, you could have wavering loyalty. Like there are certain guards that would die for their master, but there are others that wouldn't. You know, everyone has their price. So I love the idea of, and this goes into the greater thing. You know, you guys will listeners, you'll learn. I love the social aspect of D anD. love the theatrics. I love the improv. So I never miss an opportunity to plug in um social elements or or places where you're going to have to do several charisma checks you're going to have to convince people you're going to have to negotiate um i think dungeons often turn into a meat grinder um when there's so many opportunities to add little social encounters throughout the way i have this weird fantasy about having a co-gm and running a dungeon oh, with yeah. creatures that like like elves somebody some and, and with creatures like elves or goblins that speak a different language that maybe not all the players speak. And then I can lean over to my co-GM and say, text Steve this, because he hears it, right? And then he does, because oh. it's, it's a huge pain to stop what you're doing, because obviously as a GM, your full attention is demanded almost 100% of the time. Yeah. Um, and for someone else to kind of spread out information uh, for what people are seeing and perceiving separately from the rest of the group. And I think... Playing online, uh, like Roll D twenty has something like that, but even then, you still have to stop and manage that. So yeah, no, I mean, we could talk about this fantasy. I've had that same fantasy, like of having a co DM that also controls the music and sound effects. Yes. Um, and then they are the ones. And also, one problem I have that my players love um, is that I uh, will often find myself in a situation where two NPCs are talking to each other, and I have to <laughs> role play as both. Um, I'm sure every DM uh, at some point has come across this where you're like, oh, what are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. Well, well and, and it's just this. It's so taxing to role play two people. <laughs> I, and, I hate when that happens. And, and my players love it because they're just laughing because it's it's all on me and it just turns into a one-man show. Uh, but, but I totally get what you're saying about having a co-DM fantasy. <laughs> what are some of your favorite traps that you've devised in your games? Oh, guys, I'm sorry. I don't like traps. Um, traps can be awesome, but they're very hard to do. And I think talking about what I was talking about earlier, the social aspects I think are underplayed in a dungeon. I think traps are often overplayed in a dungeon. Mm -hmm. Um, traps often are very boring. They're very static and they kind of just exist as like a, a hit point tax, um, of just, you know, people are going to trigger traps, um, and, and either people are going to trigger traps all the way through, um, and they're going to have a lot less health than you expected them to have, or they're going to just go incredibly slow and, and, and put, you know, uh, dust over every wire and feel every corner and, you know, press their foot down lightly on every stone. And at that point, the dungeon slows to a crawl. And I guess maybe that's why it's called dungeon crawls, um, <laughs> and not dungeon sprints. <laughs> um, but, but I think traps, I, I don't know. I've never had much luck with standard traps, only like the more creative ones. No, you're right. It does seem like a hit point tax, but I feel like a lot of modern GMs are missing out on a crucial Gary Gygax feature of dungeons. That is timekeeping. Um, there's a quote that I heard from the excellent shut up and sit down, um, podcast 
they said that uh, every game is improved with the addition of a timer. And huh. I find that having this element of pressure that's making you go faster, um, it goes back to my point of making players play in suboptimal ways instead of just you know making their game boring for safety. Um, uh, traps are really only interesting if there's a cost to um, to finding them, right? Because if they want to spend the time and, and pick over every room and roll a hundred times to find every trap, you're right, it's boring. But if you have an army of the undead like crushing through doors behind you, um, then it's interesting. Um, oh, think, that is so true. Think of Indiana Jones or something, right? Like the rolling boulder. Like you don't have time to stop and ponder the universe. Um, so I highly recommend a timer for you. No, that that solves that. Like literally, that solves the problems I was talking about. Like because everything you know, when there's no incentive to go quickly, um, it it people can take as much time as they want to make sure they do it perfect and figure out every secret door and all mm-hmm. that stuff. But when there is a timer. Like, yeah, it makes them – that is perfect of what you're saying of playing in suboptimal conditions. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. That's, I'm going to I'm gonna use that more. That's also where random encounters become useful in dungeons because when you see the tables in the DMG, you're thinking, I don't want to have random encounters because it's just going to slow my game down. I have a story to tell. I have these, these scenes I want to hit. But a random encounter really is uh, to incentivize players to go faster because you say, okay, if you wait here – uh, after 15 minutes of in-game time, you know, True. I check up a, a mark, there's a chance that you're going to have to fight something and you don't want that. And it's going to mm-hmm. use up resources that you'd rather use on the boss. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's absolutely a good point. Like that's the one thing, like t- keeping time in D and ex- I experienced this issue, um, a few sessions ago with my table. I said, um, do you want to take this portal that that's risky and could end you up in the wrong location? Or do you just want to take the long way of walking? Um, and there's like, yeah, long way because I am pretty adverse to, uh, making random, uh, tables and having random encounters for travel. I'm pretty bad at travel, to be honest. I can improve there a lot, but, um, so yeah, cause for them travel is nothing cause they're for the players, they're sitting at the table and then I go, all right, a day passes, <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah, so that, that, that's, that's totally true of keeping the um the timekeeping regarding the the tables i i I like that i guess that's an obvious thing like i shouldn't act act like my mind is blown (laughs) like obviously travel should have more random tables and i should punish players for taking the longer safer safer route i don't i don't think it's obvious um as david can attest i've been experimenting with uh hex crawls sandbox style adventures and they involve timekeeping because otherwise the players remember if there is a system they can exploit they will every time if it's safer and they will so you have to de-incentivize that i was just gonna say that for me traps are very poorly used and a lot of them are in my opinion poorly designed as well most of the time if you look at a lot of the traps it's kind of something something happens to the players like this happens to you so you'll be walking and then you step on a pressure plate and you get shot with a spike like that's not fun that's not interesting or interactive Mm -hmm. i like more dynamic traps where there isn't change in the environment and you have to do something different otherwise you're going to die so there's a giant boulder rolling at you what do you do it's like i jump out of the way but if you're in a like a small encapsulated room and there's nowhere where you're in the middle of combat yeah or you're in the middle of combat and these things are happening so for me, traps are more about changing the environment to force players to act differently than they normally would. That is a great point. 
And I think a lot of people don't view traps that way. They view them as like static parts of the environment that you have to overcome or get past um, or they yeah. trigger. But no, I like that. And I'm sure uh, like that we will have a future episode on traps. And David, you'll have a chance to uh, redeem oh. me and Will on uh, our thoughts so on them. so much to talk about. Perfect. That'll definitely be a future episode. Okay, so next is uh, riddles in dungeons. Uh, riddles were like a surprisingly large part um, of the earlier D&D dungeons and the earlier editions. Um, and I feel like they've kind of fell out of favor. Um, so this might be possibly divisive of, do you use uh, riddles in your dungeon? In my very first no. adventure, I did. And it was just kind of dumb. <laughs> so I do have an example of really great riddles uh, from what I've mm-hmm. read. So I'm going to do something that annoys me when I see other people do it, but... Here I go. All right. I've been reading through the Tomb of Annihilation book, specifically the dungeon at the very end. Yes. And there's player handouts because you see inscriptions on the raw that Asarak has written that uh, give indications of solutions to puzzles later in the dungeon. And they're not obvious at all. And I think a lot of players would completely miss or blunder into situations because they, they don't realize how important those clues are. So I don't know... Is this an example of good riddles or bad riddles? I personally think they're pretty cool um, because it rewards players who pay attention and punishes those who don't. Huh. Yeah, I think I've had the, I've used riddles a few times and every time, um, I don't know if I've just gotten lucky with the riddles, um, but my players have, they took about a minute and they solved them. And I think that was the perfect amount of time for, for it to be a challenge and then they solve it. Because, I mean, that's really what a dungeon is. There's a challenge and the players solve it. If the players solve it too quickly, it's boring. Um, and also, on the exact opposite side of the coin, if the players are stuck there, it's boring as well. So you have to have that balance of how quickly are the players going to overcome this challenge. Um, and I think riddles, it's a shot in the dark because they could either go, oh, obviously it's the moon. Um, and, and they just get it like that or, and, and that's too easy, or it's one where they're just like, I don't know, like, uh, is it, is it like, I don't know, is it like a cherry pie? I, I'm confused. So riddles in general just are kind of risky, um, on like the estimation of time it would take to, to get them right. So what would you do if a player or a group could not solve a riddle? Um, well, I would start to give them, hit. I normally have a fair amount of NPCs with the party. Um, so I would either have an NPC intervene and not answer the riddle, uh, but just have some way of creatively giving a hint, um, or something like that. But you're right. That is a huge challenge. Um, and I'm very lucky to never have a group that's just like, I don't know, because I really, I, I'm trying to think what I would do if they're just like, I have no idea. <laughs> so I have, I have two, uh, two points that I'd like to make on the topic of riddles. The okay, you get one, one is... David. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. I'll take what I can get. <laughs> so my first my first thing is that riddles should, shouldn't feel like a roadblock. Yeah. And for me, it's a great place to make a dividing point. So let's say you have a dungeon and there's two paths, and one of them is open and the other is blocked, and you have to like solve a riddle to go through the other one. And then let's say that's a shortcut. So the players can choose to try to solve the riddle and take the shortcut, or they can go the long way around, which either could be 
equally as treacherous. Though that's a, that's a good point. Like riddles don't have to be like if you don't get the riddle right, you literally can't go on. You know, it could just be like <laughs> yeah, an and, advantage uh, or something like that. Yeah, and that, for me, that's the problem with riddles is too often they are difficult, and that like the players can't proceed forward if they don't solve it. And that's mm-hmm. my major gripe with it. The second is the player should be able to use the environment to help solve the riddle. So let's say mm. they've learned pieces of information in the past, or they've learned, um, they look at like why the temple's there, or like whatever, like the riddle's based off of, or mm-hmm. whatever its purpose serves, and they kind of, they can use that to deduct the solution. Yeah. Kind of like in the Lord of the Rings, if you think about like that riddle scene. Like, oh, that yeah. Should, yeah. That should be how a riddle is solved. Hmm. Well, um, I don't know if we'll have a full episode devoted to riddles, but uh, Will, are you any any more swayed? <laughs> we should just have a, a, an episode that is just all riddles, and, and we just continually ask, um, and then you would have to to tweet at us. Um, oh, to, in order to oh and it's and, just us trying to solve riddles. Uh, it's, it sounds like a nightmare. I'm yeah, sure I'd, there's. I would rather die. There's got to be a riddle podcast, and I am going to be looking that up. It's called Riddlecast. <laughs> Oh, yuck. Okay, uh, so the next next part of a, a dungeon we'd like to explore is kind of related. Uh, puzzles. Um, do you use puzzles in your dungeon? So in our notes here, I wrote why I hate them. Because <laughs> uh, I have yet to see them work. So D&D is inherently a... Uh, it uses the medium of imagination and conversation. Mm-hmm. And if you're trying to explain this very specific setup, like a room or um, tiles on the ground or a drawing or something, like if you don't spend the time to create handouts for your players or you draw it or sculpt it or whatever, it just takes a long time and it's not very fun. There's a, a high investment for, as far as I can tell, very little payoff. Yeah, I mean, puzzles are hard for me to uh, vouch for. Um, I've used a few of them before, um, and they they have not gone too well. Um, I think the puzzles that come in the published uh, adventures um, are better uh, because you can you know, make copies and give handouts, and they're already there, um, and it gives them a visual. And I mean, that, that that's basically the point. Riddles work better, in my opinion, in dungeons or just in D and D in general because. They're um, an audio format. They're like a um, mm-hmm. like you you hear them. It works in in the D and D theater of the mind thing. Puzzles are inherently visual most of the time, um, so yeah. puzzles and you have to either describe it perfectly, um, or have handouts that you give to the players or pieces you move around that sort of thing. Like puzzles are, I think, better for game video games. Like like I'm thinking Uncharted has some really cool puzzles. Um, but yeah, it, it's very hard to pull off. I have an idea for a puzzle that a spellcaster has. You just get a bunch of like 20 piece, my little pony puzzles. And whenever he wants <laughs> to cast a spell, he has to solve one of these puzzles. Oh so my his, gosh. like his turn comes up and it just like you wait, you know, 10 seconds. And if he hasn't solved it by then you have to move on. So he basically is slipping in the initiative <laughs> order, but then all the spells, right? Like would be second level or higher or something. Uh, it's just a, or kind of the way that there's an RPG that uses a Jenga tower to... Oh, um, yeah, to determine... Isn't it like to determine when the, the haunt begins or whatever for a haunted house? Uh, yeah, the game is called like Dread. Player attempts something risky. They have to pull one or two blocks, and when the tower falls, that person dies. Oh, that's so cool. So I wonder I, if there'd be a way to do that in a dungeon. 
I love that concept, um, just in general, of applying kind of game rules or like board gamey rules uh, to D and I think there's a lot more to explore. That I, I think in the coming years we'll see a lot of uh, board game like physical pieces, uh, maybe potentially having its place in D and D. But who knows? Yeah. Actually, I could definitely see using a Jenga tower in a dungeon. Uh, maybe they are in a haunted house, right? Like they're trying to avoid causing, you know, waking up the dead or, or whatever, causing trouble. And Or even you're like in a temple and it's like starting to collapse. Yes. Oh and my you gosh. you like take out pieces and when the Jenga tower collapses, the whole dungeon collapses. And this is why you have to track time is because at the end of this many uh, player turns, basically you would run initiative, even though it's not combat. At the end of each round, you have to pull two pieces. So there's a chance you get trapped inside. That's super cool. interesting. That is super interesting. I've, so, I've uh, never thought about this before. Back to my point about puzzles. I was just going to say that uh, I would do the same thing as riddles. If you make it a roadblock, it's not going to be fun. Because uh-huh. if it becomes unsolvable, the players are going to be frustrated, you're going to be frustrated, and everyone's going to have a bad time. Mm-hmm. So what I would do is I would try to incorporate a way of making it an alternate path. So let's say you have a statue that's spitting flames out in an arc. You can either run through it and take a little bit of damage or try to figure out a way to turn it off using um, different symbols on the walls. That's a good point. I think in regards to traps, riddles, puzzles, and even monsters, all of the topics we've we've kind of dug into, I think there is a common misconception, I'm mainly speaking for myself, is that when you enter a room, it's like, oh, this room is the riddle room. Or, oh, this room Mm -hmm. has a sleeping dragon in it. Uh, this room has a trap in it. This room has a puzzle in it. And that room is completely devoted to that one thing. Uh, but I think going through dungeons, you can mix and mash these together to form a recipe that is much better than just a single thing. Like like even the statue, the spinning flame statue you described, it that's could be a combination of a puzzle and a trap and technically a monster. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and it, it blends all those together in a way that makes it better and becomes um, the, the better than the sum of its parts. So I really yes. like the idea of combining these aspects. I love when things are blended together because it makes it a much more interesting experience rather than experience the individual experiencing the individual parts. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, this... it is simpler. Like you can you can just be like, yeah, this is the trap room. This is the zombie room, and it, it it's simple. But if you want to take your your dungeon and make it make it uh, the best, I think combining is the best way to go. This reminds me of the Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild that came out, I think, early this year. Uh, where they have all these systems that interact with each other all the time. And so you're really kind of figuring out how to make them work for you. And so I like the idea of having that room with the walls that close in and crush things. And then you figure out a way to, obviously, to get out. But then you you kite a monster into that room and have them get smashed. That is a hugely satisfying moment for players Mm -hmm. to see these systems interact like that. And I think a lot of GMs, myself included, don't consider that when we're building a dungeon. So how do you guys incorporate player navigation into your dungeon planning? I think this is a big this is a big part of a dungeon in general. Um, especially the classic one, you know, the cliche uh, dark dungeon where you have your dark vision, but that only helps so much. You know, you're holding up the torch, walking into the darkness. Um, for me, I'm very proud of a system I use. I think I saw it on Reddit, something like that. Um, where basically I have the map of my dungeon. I have that in the middle of the table. 
then I have a um, big piece of construction paper, something that could cover the entire um, map of the dungeon and then some. Then I cut a hole right in the middle um, of that black piece of construction paper. And then I lay that down. And that hole is the field of vision for my players. Um, so then wherever they go, they tell me, and they basically just move the piece of construction paper to tell me where they're moving in the dungeon. Um, and I found that works so well because they see their direct surroundings, like literally on the physical page, uh, but they don't see beyond that. Um, and I think it's a really good way to hide most of the dungeon, but also give them their literal field of vision uh, so they can get that rare visual aspect of d and I, I think it, it's worked fantastic for me. I love that. I'm definitely going to try that. Yeah, I would love to incorporate that into my game. Another option for navigation that's, that's very simple uh, is just revealing the map to your players. Like just saying, this is the dungeon. Now, I know a lot of people uh, do not like that because it completely takes the mystery uh, out of navigation because you know what's ahead of you. You know what's a dead end. You can see doorways, stuff like that. Uh, but I think if you have, and I think I am incredibly blessed with uh, very, very good players um, and they are very good at not metagaming. So even if they look at the D&D map um, and they, they, they can see the dungeon map in front of them and they see, oh, that fork in the road leads to a dead end, uh, they can delete that information from their mind and still say, um, you know, my character does this um, because they, they can separate the player from the character. Um, that often is not the case and they will metagame and be like, oh yeah, this way's a dead end. Uh, oh yeah, we should go this way, obviously. So... I think I, I'm lucky to have the players I do that don't metagame, but oftentimes, I think in general, my uh, and I still use it most of the time, that, that little field of vision thing works the best. Yeah, I, personally, I'm a fan of having the players map out the dungeon themselves. You're crazy. Just, David, you're I crazy. I think it's interesting. I think it's fun. It gives them something to to do and oftentimes most dungeons don't necessarily need a map unless you're going through that's true that's very true yeah they're not necessary just kind of do a crude drawing you don't have to be exact on the tiles yeah they're not completely necessary yeah it's not super necessary another cool thing and this doesn't even apply to dungeons this applies just in general for DD um they can buy or acquire a map of the area or in this case of the dungeon um, and the great thing about this is um, that map can be wrong, oh, um, which is very, very cool. You know, if a swindler is selling a map um, of 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 the local dungeon, you know, and they they bite and they buy um, that map, it's very interesting. And, and they like they're like, oh, we can't go down this way. And then you explain as a DM, oh no, the the path continues even though it's a dead end on the map, mm. that's a great moment where the character's like, oh my god, <laughs> crap. <laughs> or even having the the, the players intentionally, uh, having a, an NPC intentionally working with the dungeon to get the players oh, like, to trap going them. into like a monster's lair. Yeah. Because he wants to eat them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that's very, that's, that's, I think that's incredible because it can add so much um, interesting layers to it. It's like, oh, it. here's the treasure room and then you go in and it's just a, a giant dragon it's like oh i'm dead (laughs) so along the lines of getting a treasure map from town which i think you probably wouldn't be able to do all the time um you could just have an npc give them directions you know in terms of landmarks oh they say go in and when you find the big rock with the the pool around it then go right you know whatever um 
and it, it doesn't necessarily have to be correct or it could be correct but it's a little confusing because maybe he skips some rooms uh, <laughs> to get an idea of where they're going right and it wasn't malicious he's just a farmer and he's not a cartographer <laughs> i love that idea too he was like 13 and almost died <laughs> no I, I really like that idea too um giving giving uh people who are entering a dungeon information that may or may not be correct is i think yeah. it, it's very fun you could even have um if it's like a temple or something you could have the old like arc oh, oh what it used to look like yeah, yeah, yeah. you like, could have yeah. like the original designs yeah and then as like natural caves have been formed and yeah no it, it would have moved in and make their own tunnels it would be like entering a a, a post-apocalyptic building and all you have are the blueprints yeah. Um. So so you, it's not going to be correct. You don't know how things have been changed. Yeah. I think we've all played enough Fallout to get very excited by that idea. Yeah. Uh, my final point is after talking about ways to present players with maps and give them information, I think if you kind of trained them on the idea of always having some kind of information, the moment you present them with this fortress that has no map at all, no indication of anything, I think it's going to concern them. I think it's going to frighten them. That's yeah, that's a good point. And that's all it's all it's never a bad thing to give your players a little fright now and then. Is there anything else you guys want to add before we move on to the question vault? Huh. Okay, okay. Um I, one of the most classic monsters uh in D&D um is the mimic. Um and the mimic is such a fantastic element uh for for a dungeon because you know obviously it mimics certain everyday objects and almost all the time is there a chest uh but but i like expanding <laughs> the mimic into anything else it can be a door um it can be uh a weapon uh it can be a it can even be like a whole room um that they walk into and there's like uh, the way i framed it in one of my dungeons is i said there's a big it seems like a rolled up red carpet on the ground um and they enter and that ends up being the mimic's tongue um and the whole room is a mimic um and so i really mimics can be used in great ways and the reason i love them so much is because a lot of times the first thing i will do um or even the second early on you introduce a mimic and they freak out especially new players um and then from then on out even if you don't introduce a mimic for for uh, dozens of, of sessions afterwards. I love the idea of just this hulking half-orc barbarian still reaching out and poking a mundane chest with a stick, <laughs> afraid that it's a mimic. I love it. Like, I love that fear of, like, oh, my God, anything in this dungeon could turn alive at any moment. What if, okay, what if they open up the chest after poking it carefully, and inside there's treasure, necklaces and gold coins and things and it's just hundreds of very small low cr difficulty mimics disguised as <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <this> treasure <coins. laughs> my, oh friend, my, my friend there's... talks about uh, a mimic being uh, so you open up a chest um and then you you there's another smaller chest um, and then you open up and there's another smaller chest and you just keep going until you get like 12 chests deep and you find like you know a diamond in the middle and you reach for the diamond and all of those chests were mimics <laughs> All of them latch on me. Oh, I, I love. I'm. I'm so in love with mimics. So uh, on top of mimics, uh, two of my other favorite monsters that kind of tag along with mimics are uh, the doppelganger. Yeah. The do- So the doppelganger can shapeshift into anything. So being able to even just shapeshift into a party member mm-hmm. is just a great way to 
control your players. Especially if you can get that party member to act differently. Yeah. That is one of the greatest things. And I'm sure we'll have an episode on that, maybe about secrets or something. Um, where, yeah, one of them is replaced the doppelganger and you just text him like, hey, act differently, you're a doppelganger. <laughs> and people will just be like, what's wrong with you? And <laughs> they'll be like, I'm fine. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, it's so great. Yeah, doppelganger is a great uh, option. The second one I was going to say is the Kenku. And oh, if yes. you don't know about yes. Kenku, they can mimic any voice or sound that they have heard. Oh, yes. And they are terrifying if you use them right. I remember I was in a game, and it would, like, mimic the voice of one of the other players. And it was just so creepy and weird. And it, it would also, like, mimic, like, the voice of, like, an old man or, like, a little girl. Yes. And you're just, like, terrified because you don't know what's going on. And I love the idea that Kinkus can only uh, imitate voices that they've heard, and not even voices like mm. sentences they've just heard in sounds. the past. Yeah. And so I'll have a king, like a Kinku, that'll just be like, "Oh, there's there's probably nothing in that dungeon. Let's go investigate, Tim." You oh know? my gosh! <laughs> and yeah, so that's it's the idea that oh, that's <sighs> the that's the thing that the Kinku heard the little boy say before it murdered. <laughs> like, oh, king, yeah, Kinkus are great. I think for the mummy, what's the... that bird over there? <laughs> <laughs> I think Kinkus are great for a lot of the same reasons and Mimics are great because they're so good yes. at messing with players' expectations. Oh, that's yeah. that's really creepy. That's that's some Doctor Who level um <laughs> freak right there. Yes. Yes. Welcome to the question vault. Tonight's question is what is your favorite class both to play and to DM for? So my favorite class to DM for has to be Paladin. Oh, I second Paladins, that. yeah. Paladins throw a wrench in everything because the players can go one way and the Paladins always have to go the other. They always have to take the high road. They always have to do what's right. And if they don't, they lose their powers. And for me, that's such an interesting dynamic that a lot of other classes haven't really been developed to have their own distinct feature. Um, huh. But if I'm playing a class, I I would probably have to say like a wizard. <laughs> a classic mid maxing baby. Spell, spell slinging is just too too much fun. Okay, for me, uh, definitely as a DM, I want one of my players to be a paladin. Uh, but for different reasons that you said, David, because you said that they have to adhere to a strict um, kind of alignment. Um, I'm a little more yes. looser with my alignment, but I love that I have kind of a degree of uh, control over their lives because I get to role play as their church or their order or even their god. Um, and so I can manipulate them, not manipulate, but I can uh, have some degree of control and make them feel guilty for certain things. Um, even, like you said, the, the, the severe thing of losing their powers um, but not necessarily alignment based, but I love that I can role play and have some degree of control over how they play, um, which is which is really interesting. But to play, um, I personally love just very high charisma uh, characters that are tr that want to talk their way out of situations whenever they can and, and are opposed to combat. Um, so what really intrigues me is the I can't remember what the what's the new paladin in Xanathar is called. Oh, uh, the peacemaker or. Oathbreaker? It's, it's the what regardless, it's the pacifist paladin. I feel like that'd be super fun to roleplay. Um, but in general, I like high, high charisma characters. So usually 
it's a tie between a bard or a rogue to play as. What about you, Will? My favorite class to DM for is surprisingly, and I'm surprising myself with this answer, druids. Because druids can do so much huh. crap, and I find them constantly frustrating, but I also recognize that it's really good to sharpen your GM skills um, by having to plan for a person who could turn into a T-Rex at any time. <laughs> That's so true. Um, I have yet to see anyone really play druids role-playing-wise in an interesting or unique way for me, um, but they're always just such a challenge to play with that uh, it makes you a better DM. Ah, oh, yeah. Flexes your DM muscles. Mm. Or at least uh, makes them sore. <laughs> and then uh, my favorite class to play... Uh, oh, at this point, I would just like to play D&D at all. Um, <laughs> I think probably Bard, because they, they have all these really cool abilities, and I feel that Bards are underappreciated as far as classes go. In 5e, they have Inspiration Die that they give out, and I just love the idea of supporting the team and also having this capability to produce really great spells. So that'd be a bard. So that concludes our first uh, inaugural episode of Vox Arcana. Um, this podcast will release every two weeks. Um, we're excited to show you guys what we have in store. Um, and we're excited to try to help you guys uh, be better dungeon masters. Or if a player sneaks in here, you're allowed in too. Thank you for listening to Vox Arcana, episode one. I'm William. I'm Jake. I'm David. We'll see you next time.